Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to Accelerate Your Business Growth, where we're exploring all sorts of business topics. Experts from around the world join me, your host, Diane Helbig, for a conversation where they share their expertise with all of you. Take what you need, when you need it. Featured on Inc.com, Forbes, and MSNBC's Your Business, this podcast is recognized as one of the best podcasts for small business, sales, leadership, social media, and more. When it comes to business, Accelerate Your Business Growth has got it covered. And now on with the show. My guest today is Curian Therakin. Curian is the founder of the sales and marketing strategy firm, Strategy Peak Sales and Marketing Advisors, and a 27-year veteran of the sales and marketing industry. He's consulted for companies in numerous sectors and is also the author of the Amazon bestseller, The Seven Essential Stories Charismatic Leaders Tell which details how anyone can move people and mountains with the power of story. Thanks so much for joining me today, Curian. Diane, thanks for having me on your show. I'm, I'm thrilled to have you here. Sales is one of my favorite topics, but, the, but so is storytelling. So um, I, I think I wanna start on a, a, you know, an interesting question, I guess, um, because it's on more of the negative side of things, but what do you think is like the number one reason that companies, organizations, movements, you know, whatever it is that they fail? It's always the same reason. And uh, it's when companies, organizations move, uh, I'm sorry, uh, organizations, companies, all these different things, people either thrive and succeed or fail and disappear when their stories thrive or fail. So the story is the very first thing that anybody buys from you, whether, it, whether they're trying to buy a product or buy into your movement or your organization, the very first thing they have to buy is the big idea, which is then uh, results in a series of key messages, which are then all embedded in a strategic narrative, the story. If they don't buy into your story, they won't buy into anything else. Boy, that, that, it's so funny you're saying that. And I'm thinking I was at a, an event last night and I started talking to this woman and she started telling me about this organization that she's involved in. And she got me so interested that I'm probably going to join the organization. And, and what did you buy into? You haven't, and no cash is transacted. Right. No membership forms have been signed. You have bought into the story. Yes, yes, it, it was powerful, I could feel it. Okay, now you say that it's not true that people follow leaders first, and I would love to have a better understanding of what you mean by that. 
Well, it's the same thing of what I just said. You know, the very first thing that somebody has to buy into is the story. And then the leader that is espousing and promoting that story. And sometimes, and, and, and it's not that it's one or the other. They are in a dual orbit. And so a great leader with a poor story becomes a poor leader. But a, but a mediocre leader with a great story has the opportunity to become a great leader. So it's a dual orbit. And, you know, a, a phenomenal leader, if he has enough uh, poor stories, if she has enough poor stories, they, people will stop paying attention to them and they will quickly put them in the dust heap of forgotten leaders because they just don't trust anything that they say anymore. That's interesting. That's, that's yeah, that, that's really interesting. So talk to me some about like story categories and, you know, which are powerful to tell, you know, when to persuade someone. Sure, sure about that. The um, uh, the big story categories are going to be things like uh, this. Well, that is the seven essential stories that uh, charismatic leaders have to tell. Now, you might be interested in how we came up with these seven stories, and sure. ultimately, you have to look at religion. And uh, there was a one of uh, Apple computers first marketing clients, uh, the very I'm sorry, marketing consultants uh, was a fellow by the name of Regis McKenna. And one of his quotes paraphrased a little was that all great marketing takes its cues from great religion. And because they do, they they are uh, able to emulate the power of these great religions. And humankind has been around, uh, modern humans have been around perhaps for about uh, 2 million years now, something like that. Uh, modern, uh, uh, so, uh, sorry, uh, modern societies, you know, where we are in a single place, uh, growing our own food, growing our own livestock, things like that, maybe twelve to 15,000 years, something like that. And, you know, throughout that time, there have been, thousands of religions. Now, of course, we have some very large religions today. Now you have Christianity, which is only about 2000 years old. Uh, and uh, you have Islam, which is started in the 600s. And you have Judaism, and all three are, uh, are Abrahamic religions. And Judaism is the oldest, which is about 5000 years old, but it only has about 14 million adherents. Uh, Christianity has about 2.1 billion. Uh, Islam has about 1.8 billion. Now, 1.8 billion. Now, what makes these three religions so profound is their ability to not only come up with compelling stories, uh, regardless of what deities you believe in or not believe in, they have very compelling stories. And then they encourage their people to go out and tell other people to bring them into the tent. You know, certainly uh, Islam and Christianity do that in a, in a very big way. So they are in the storytelling uh, business. Now, if you take a look at these religions, and it doesn't matter where you go, you know, the thousands of religions before that, or these major ones today, they have seven stories that they have to tell in order to get people into the tent and keep people in the tent. Uh, would you like to go through a few of these now? Sure, I'd love that. Okay, so the very first one, no surprise to anybody, I'm sure, is creation and origin. How did this begin? What was the inciting incident? Uh, what caused all of this to take place at the moment it did? What was the purpose at the beginning? Story two is all about our identity, beliefs, and values. Who are we as people? What are the highest order principles that we aspire to? What, was, what must never be violated? 
and what must be always adhered to. Story three is all about the big idea. What is that central organizing uh, idea that binds everything else that we do together? And it's the central orbit. Now, there could be other orbits around this as well. But what is that central unifying idea? If you go to FedEx, the central unifying idea is absolutely positively overnight. And in fact, it permeates every aspect of their business. Uh, and it tells people how they should behave, even in the absence of, you know, anybody uh, being around to punish or reward that subsequent behavior, because it is a central part of that culture. The uh, story four, sorry, <laughs> you have a question on that, Diane? No, 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 I'm okay. just... Yeah, please very... interrupt, please interrupt, otherwise I'll just keep talking. I will. Uh, so the story four is now the enemy we face. Who do we fight for or who do we fight against? And it's not necessarily an individual. Uh, we might fight against uh, forces of nature. So uh, here in Canada, forest the uh, forest fires are a big deal right now. That's a force of nature. Climate change, big deal right now. Or, you know, back in the early 90s, it was Saddam Hussein. You know, and so it can be all sorts of things we fight for or fight against. You could fight for childhood literacy or fight against childhood poverty. So we need something to polarize our activities uh, with or against, you know, so uh, again, so that we can marshal our resources and our people in a direction that uh, is either going to achieve the success or overcome the obstacle. Story five is all about the mighty winds. And what I say is that every business is actually a sailing ship, not a powerboat. A sailing ship and sailing ships by definition need wind to power the sails. Now, what's interesting is that most beginning entrepreneurs, people who create organizations, they get real busy and quickly on building the ship without ever ascertaining the direction, availability or strength of the wind. And wind in this case are about the, in this uh, analogy is about the big macro forces in the in the environment as a whole. So the big macro forces are things like economic forces, uh, societal forces, technological, uh, environmental as well. You know, the actual uh, things like earthquakes or, or salinity of the sea could be that. Uh, political forces, legislative forces. Now, if you're against these macro trends, your ship will be capsized or it will not move. But if you are aligned with these forces, you have the power of a, a mighty tailwind behind you that'll lift you and your and your boat into very high speed uh, uh, races, you know, and, and as long as you're aligned with it, not against it, as long as you're aligned, you can take advantage of those forces. Uh, and story six. So if all those first five stories are true, what is story six? Story six is the right-hand side of the equation. The first five stories are the left-hand side of the equation. Story six is the journey we must undertake. If all these first five stories are believable, then this is what we've got to do. This is the journey we must undertake. And st finally, story seven is the why we will win story. And why we will win is simply a retelling of all six of the previous stories in one single telling that's summarized now. It's a more of an encapsulated telling, but with the addition of what I call keystone elements. And keystone elements are simply things that guarantee your people the win. And so here's some common keystones, and there's hundreds of them, but here's some common keystones. God is with us. 
superior technology, superior strategy, superior people. Uh, we death ground is is a uh, is a keystone. Uh, there's a great story around death ground that I have in the book. It's uh, all about Hernan Cortez, and Hernan Cortez was a young Spaniard, and in uh, 1519 he fled Cuba, and uh, right behind him was the governor of Cuba, who was his, actually his brother-in-law. But he fled Cuba with 630 men and some ships to go and conquer the Aztecs in Mexico on his own and claim that glory for himself. And of course, the governor of Cuba, a fellow by the name of Diego, Diego Velasquez, wanted that glory for himself. But there goes Hernan. Now, here's the problem. He arrives on the shores of Veracruz in modern day Mexico, which is in which is what is in modern day Mexico now. You know, with these 630 men uh, and hot on their heels is going to be the governor of Cuba and the certainty of mutiny charges. And so there's death waiting for them back there for certain. But in front of them, in front of them is five million Aztec people on over 200,000 square kilometers of geography. And he's got 630, 630 men. That's it. So he has a very frank chat with his uh, people and said, look, you either follow me forward to untold riches or you stay here and it's going to be almost certain death. There'll be, there'll be at least a noose waiting for you here, right? And his men followed him and they allied with various uh, Indian tribes in the region who didn't like the Aztecs. And in two years, just two years later, the entire Aztec empire fell to Cortez and his allied uh, Indian forces. Now, I'm not going to comment on the morality of uh, imperialists or, you know, <laughs> conquistadors and, and things like that. And he yeah. had to help, you know, with a lot of things. Not only did he have the help of the native Indian tribes that did not like the Aztecs, he also had the uh, help of uh, European diseases like smallpox that, that devastated and killed, you know, multitudes of, uh, of the local indigenous people. So, it wasn't all this death ground, but unless he was, could, what is it, get his people moving forward, they would have simply disappeared from history. But those are the kinds of stories that you have to tell. And, uh, and throughout the book, we have multiple stories illustrating each of those chapters. Okay. So it's so interesting because it feels like uh, there's so much to be aware of in order to be able to tell those stories. Like when you were talking about the, the fifth category of stories and it's, it's all these forces, they're not necessarily things that the leader can control, but has to be aware of so that they're you know, sure that they're in alignment as opposed to trying to push against them. That's correct. You know, uh, so leaders uh, are going to have very low control over all these macro forces in the in the environment you know that but they have to be able to recognize them and see a path forward see the opportunity in all the ongoings on right right whether you're a seasoned designer or a total novice with visme you can create engaging dynamic branded content that makes people ask how did you do that visit tinyurl.com slash seizevisme to explore. If you're a small business owner or salesperson who struggles with getting the sales results you're looking for, grab a copy of Succeed Without Selling on Amazon and wherever books are sold. 
And if you haven't seen all Audible.com has to offer, you don't know what you're missing. Sign up for a free trial at audibletrial.com slash business growth. Now, <laughs> I'm really curious about this, that you say there's a difference between a fact and a truth. Yes. Okay. What's the difference? Okay. So a fact is a fact. So two plus two equals four. That's a fact. Yes. Uh, uh, an accepted fact is that humans landed on the moon in 1969, July 20th, 1969. That's an accepted sure. fact, right? Yeah. Now, what becomes a truth is when you see a fact and infuse it with your own meaning. And so this idea of uh, climate change, for example, it is an absolute fact that the climate is changing. <laughs> that's, that's not in question, you know, and, the, and there's all sorts of stats and, and the facts uh, proving that. But the meanings part of it is, what's responsible for this? Is this human activity or is it a natural cycle of the earth? You know, is this just part? So when you uh -huh. infuse it with meanings, you come up with different solutions. Uh, because it's it's a problem either way, but you come up with different solutions. Does that mean we have to curtail uh, our uh, internal combustion engines and the burning of fossil fuels? Or does it simply mean that we have to adapt in a way that uh, we are going to be in line with just a natural cycle? And in one case, you know, we're going to completely go over to green energy. In another case, well, maybe we just ride this out. So the same fact results in different meanings, which results in different political leanings and different solutions uh, or, or, or non-solutions in the process. Facts infused with meaning become individual truths, not truth, but truths with an S. Okay, so it feels like it's the truths that create difficulty because they are individuals. So, so like that's where a lot of the impasse comes from. Agreed. Hmm. Interesting. So down in, down in the US, for example, you have uh, on one side, you have the Republicans and the other side, you have the Democrats. Same set of facts, completely different meanings of results. Yes. And, right. and po polar meanings. Uh, and and opinions and different legislations that arise from it, you know, and it, there's all sorts of things. Facts are manipulated uh, to arrive at different truths. And the manipulation can be something that is, uh, you know, uh, can be very, what is it, um, uh, very, what is it, manipulative. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm struggling for words here, but it's self-serving, you know, and uh, ignoring some of the facts and yeah. uh, cherry picking the ones that uh, that you want to have. But it arrives, arrives at completely different uh, plans of action and uh, and actual activities taken. And and the idea that there is that people are convinced by the facts alone is absolutely false. Absolutely mm -hmm. false. There's a great video on uh, YouTube right now, and I'll get it for your show notes. Right. Uh, it's about uh, a Tea Party conservative, and how do you con uh, how do you uh, convince uh, a very conservative uh, group of people to support uh, initiatives for climate change? 
How do you do that? Because, you wow. know, a lot of conservative groups do not believe in climate change. Right. And so how do you do that? And so this is actually a Tea Party conservative telling everybody how to support, uh, get support for climate change. For And he, she supports Al Gore and she also supports um, uh, Donald Trump. That's interesting to me. Yeah, okay. Uh, no, so the way she says it, you have to align it with the lenses uh, that uh, the individual groups have, specifically the values lens. And so when you say that you have green initiatives, well, when, the minute, second that you say things like green initiatives, people shut down in the conservative camp, yeah. uh, green initiative. But when you reposition green initiatives as energy self-sufficiency, ah, okay, yeah, yeah. that's a good thing for the U.S. to be, you know, energy self-sufficient. Yeah. So it's it's the same green uh, energy lines. It could be solar, wind, etc. But now you're positioning it at you're infusing it with the meaning of energy self-sufficiency, which also gives you the benefit of a green fuel source. Right. Right. That's fascinating. Wow. Um, you do really have to think about how you communicate and position. Uh, and, and so I love that example because it, for me, it really points to the, how powerful story is. It's what, which story are you telling or how are you telling the story to persuade the audience? That's the only thing that you have to sell at the beginning. Everything else is a bridge. Yeah. You know, so, you know, with, um, once you tell the story, uh see ultimately you have to ask yourself what you are as a role in your customer or your members life you know your adherence life uh customer client adherent and ultimately what i say is that you are the fairy godmother the wise wizard that is going to grant the hero of your story which is your client your prospect the magic tool set, the, the magic sword, the amulet, the incantation to transform them from where they are today, today to where they want to be. Mm. Okay? And your products then become the tool sets, those magic tool sets to enable that transformation. But ultimately, the story has to have your customer as hero. I see. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Okay. Along those lines, what's the number one thing the customer wants from the, the salesperson, regardless of what they sell? What is that one thing? The ultimate thing is functional relevance and then emotional significance. So your products, your brands have to convey a story and the, and the salesperson or your marketing people are conveying that story that convey functional relevance and emotional significance that allows the customer to get out of their either their current situation and where they are aspiring to get out of pain or get to gain through some kind of transformational process and what you're saying is through my tool set, my magic tool set, to an end desired state that is going to be better than where they are today. If it wasn't better, they stay put. Right, right, exactly. It's that inertia that, that is 
Yeah, the, the, in a large part, the biggest competition uh, most yeah. marketing people have, leaders have, is inertia. Yeah. It is not another competitor. The, uh -huh. the competitor is inertia, the status quo. Absolutely. That, that, that is absolutely true. Now, I would love it if you would share the investment lesson from the great horse manure crisis of the 1890s. <laughs> The investment lesson. Okay, well, uh, well, I could probably tell you a few different things. Okay, so back in the 1890s, this is uh, one of the stories out of the uh, technology section of, of the culture portion of the book. So the book is divided into two sections. One is all about culture, and the second part of the book is all about the seven stories you infuse into that culture to make your people come alive. Mission, vision, values, all those kinds of things, right? And there's seven pillars of culture, and one of the uh, pillars is clearly going to be uh, all about, um, uh, sorry, uh, is, uh, th this is uh, one of the mighty wins. It's going to be about technology, right? Yeah. Okay, so in the 1890s, uh, the number one form of transfer transportation, uh, that, the number one powering of transportation, personal goods and otherwise, was the horse. And the horse uh, conveyed everything, you know, people, goods, services of various kinds. And as cities grew, and this is all the major cities of the world, you know, London, Paris, uh, New York, uh, it didn't really matter. All the big cities of the world used the horse. But as they grew, the more horses they needed. Now, here's the problem. The average horse produces about 30 to 40 pounds of manure every day. Oh, it wow. produces three to four gallons of urine every day. And the more horses that came into the city, you know, the more the, the what is it, uh, the manure problem became a bigger problem. And the projection was by the 1920s and 1930s, New York City would be buried in 30 feet of horse manure. So what they did was in the early 1890s, they conveyed a, uh, they convened, the world's uh, first urban planning conference. And it was convened for 10 days. The hot topic uh, was going to be how to deal with the horse manure. And they had to disband after three days because no one could see a solution. <laughs> and so the cities were doomed. You know, we were doomed. What they were completely discounting is the nascent technologies that were already being very uh, seriously developed along the way. So. Uh, in the 1820s, 1830s, we had steam-powered cars, uh, automobiles, we had uh, electric-powered vehicles, all sorts of things. Electricity came to its uh, vogue, into its vogue uh, by the 1880s and such, and we had the first light rail transit systems in Germany uh, that were powered by electricity. So by the time the 1910s happened, you had Henry Ford that uh, was now dropping the price of the automobile because in the 1880s, it was a luxury product. Only the very rich could afford it. But with the assembly line, you could take that uh, the cost of that car and just drop it dramatically. I think it was like $850, uh, something like that uh, yeah. in, uh, 18, in uh, 1908 in its uh, first year production. Well, 19 years later, the price of that car had dropped to about $325 wow. because they were so efficient about it. And so now the horse is put out of work. And you know they've had a cataclysmic unemployment rate and they are seen only powering the uh, horse-powered uh, carriage rides around New York City. 
And of course, you know, with the advent of these technologies, uh, we have the uh, advent uh, as well of urbanization, suburbanization, I should say. Uh, we have the interstate freeway system. We have the advent of the fast food restaurants. So a McDonald's and a Burger King could not really exist without uh, this idea of, of convenience along these big interstate highway systems and along, along all the places that the car drives along. You know, that's just part of the culture. And mm -hmm. so if you had invested in these nascent technologies of the automobile, uh, you would have done really well uh, with the electrification, uh, really well. Now, one of the things I will caveat was that by 1920, the U.S. had almost 4,000 automobile manufacturers that had either started, stopped, or were trying to still stay in business. And of course, by the 1960s, 1970s, that was down to about five. And what do we have today? We have you know, General Motors, we have Ford, right? Yeah. We have Chrysler. Yeah. Uh, and then we have all, those are the big three, basically. And then we have all the foreign uh, manufacturers as well, like Toyota and Nissan. So you wouldn't have bet on any particular one, like Ford itself. I think Mr. Ford went bankrupt three times before he got going. Uh, but if you had invested in the industry as a whole, uh, you wouldn't have to pick uh, winners and losers. You would have just said, this auto industry is going to be a big deal to our economy in a hundred years time. I so appreciate that. Um, it's such a great story. And it, it is, you really have to be forward thinking because it, it's easy to, Stay in the same place and try and solve a particular problem with today's solutions. Yeah. Right. Instead of thinking, okay, wait a minute, what's possible? You know, what else could come along that would help alleviate that? And you have to be very uh, uh, deliberate about this kind of research. Now, but mind you, seeing a hundred years out is a very tough thing. Uh, Gottlieb yeah. Daimler. Uh, one of the people behind, uh, uh, what is it, uh, Mercedes Benz, and uh, he and uh, Carl Benz never met, but you know, they, in subsequent years, the two cars, two car manufacturers got together. Well, yeah. Daimler was a very big deal by the late 1890s, uh, and uh, Gottlieb Daimler asked his economist on staff to predict how many cars were going to be on the road by the year 2000. This is in the late 1890s. And so the economists go back and they do some calculations and they come back with a confident number of 1 million cars on the road <laughs> by the year 2000. Now the actual number, and these are passenger vehicles, not, in, not commercial uh, vehicles, right? Passenger vehicles. The actual number of passenger vehicles on the world's roads by the year 2000 was 600 million. <laughs> so, so it was definitely <laughs> jump off. off. It was definitely a jump up, but they missed it by 600 times. Yeah. And today it's over a billion. Yeah, it's a well over a billion now uh, of consumer uh, uh, consumer vehicles. Now, how do they get that number so wrong? Well, one of the aspects of their calculation was that they accurately predicted that there would be 1 million chauffeurs employed by the year, <laughs> by the year uh -huh. 2000. Because it was a it was a toy for the rich back then, and in fact, you know, even in England at that time, uh, in order to drive a car around on the roads, 
uh, you'd had to have somebody on foot waving a red flag running in front of the car to warn everybody a car was coming. So this was an absolute toy at the time. So he got the economists got the one million chauffeurs right, but they never envisioned that we would, you know, everybody and their dog would be driving themselves right. around anytime they wished. Oh, that's so crazy. Wow. Okay. I, I, I get it. Um, both parts of that, you know, because because you do, you, you only have your frame of reference to envision what the future might look like. And, and so, that, that gives you strengths and weaknesses at the same yeah. time. Because your lens, uh, you know, can only see so far and it can only see within the power of your observations. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Right. Wow. Th this is really so interesting. Um, I, I want to circle back to, so you went through the story categories. Is there one that's more powerful than the others when it comes to persuading? The story, it's not that they're more powerful. You know, the last thing anybody should do is, hey, let me tell you all my seven stories. You know, because you're going to bore the heck out of somebody. <laughs> but what I what I encourage uh, people that are in the persuasion business to do is probably start with the mighty wind story. And it is because mighty winds create tidal waves of destruction and tsunamis of opportunity in their wake. So they destroy, wholesalely destroy some industries and they create brand new industries in the process. Now, you only have to look back to, uh, to the 1940s uh, to see that happen. In the 1940s, uh, they invented the transistor. By the 1950s, 1960s, uh, the integrated circuit was well on its way. Then the microprocessor, which gives advent, uh, which gives, uh, what is it, birth uh, to computer systems. Uh, by 1969, the uh, military has established DARPAnet, the Defense Advanced Research Projects uh, Network, which connected three computer, three uh, universities together to transmit data and files back and forth, which was the beginning of the internet. Right. But with the internet came uh, the World Wide Web in the early 90s, and then a absolute tsunami of opportunities for everybody from Facebook to Microsoft to uh, eBay to Netflix, all these kinds of, those companies could not have existed without any portion of that wave not being created. Now, there have been destructions of industries as well. I used to remember walking into uh, an entire office of a steno pool of stenographers mm. uh, reviewing the dictations of their doctors and clacking away at an IBM Selectric typewriter. Where's the IBM Selectric typewriter today? State of the art in 1972, yeah. You know where it is? It's yeah. in a museum. Right. That's where it is. Now, fortunately, oh. IBM has some other tricks up its sleeve rather than just, uh, you know, Selectrics. Uh, but uh, the typewriter business is gone. Uh, no one sends their uh, their term papers out to be typed anymore. They do it on their on their laptop. And yeah. this is all part of this overall trend that was started first with the vacuum tube, and then the tech, and then the transistor, and then on it goes. I see. Okay, it's so interesting. Wow, Kirian, I, I so value this conversation. I think this is a fascinating topic and so many um, 
I, I love all of these stories because they just confirm the premise of this whole conversation about storytelling and the stories that really have an impact and and why and how they do and and how it gets to persuading people so thank you so much for joining me you're you're welcome Diane uh and what I'll do uh if your readers I'm sorry your listeners uh if they email me and I'll get you uh, my email address for your show notes Right. Uh, if they email me and tell me that they heard me on your show, I will send them a free Kindle copy of the book. Oh, how the first great. five. The first five. Great. Well, thank you for that. And speaking of that, please, will you share with the listeners how they can find you, you know, what they, whatever ways are good for you sure. for them to connect? So uh, the book is called The Seven Essential Stories Charismatic Leaders Tell. And you can find it on Amazon. But if you come to my website, strategypeak.com, uh, you can actually download a couple of chapters and even the infographic around it. Just go to the right side of strategypeak.com in the right-hand column. There's a couple of download links for you. Okay, great. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being here and sharing your expertise and, you know, the the information that is in the book, I think uh, everyone should be reading it. So again, thank you for joining me today. Diane, thanks for having me on. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Accelerate Your Business Growth, a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Discover more episodes of this podcast and explore others at evergreenpodcast.com. As always, continue to prosper and be curious. And if you're looking to get your sales strategy headed in the right direction, pick up a copy of Succeed Without Selling on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Until we meet again on another episode of Accelerate Your Business Growth, goodbye and good day. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.